Today we'll be in the, the book of Romans, so if you might turn your Bibles there. And just for a little brief um, background and a little piece of my testimony, uh, let me get to my spot here. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1. Just a little piece of my testimony. I was raised in church. Uh, a lot of our family grew up in the church homes, always went to church, and always raised in the, the Christian faith. And um, it is just a, a point of my life that I've grew up in and been um, kind of, like I said, just raised in every bit of it. Uh, there was a point in my life where I went through a really harsh sickness, and I had to the point where I was pretty much on my deathbed at like six years old, and it started to make me think about, you know, what's past eternity, what's in the afterlife, and what's, what's going to, you know, what's ahead. I already knew about this God. I was raised in church. I mean, I was the one that memorized the Bible stories and, you know, could to tell you scripture back and forth and could tell you everything about the Bible and how you could be saved, but I was not saved myself. So about, like I said, six years old, I went through that sickness, and it put me to a kind of realization of, you know, what's, what's, what's next? Am I going to heaven or hell when I die? And it was a lot of fear, and I was afraid about it. And so I came to my parents in the middle of the night one night, and I came in, 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 and I, in this fear and asked them, you know, how can I be saved? What, why, why am I having these fears? And they told me the gospel. They told me what it means to be saved. And at that point, out of, I wasn't really listening to anything they had to say because I was so afraid of what was supposed to happen and if I could just be good enough to get in. So about six years old, I made the, the profession of faith to, um, to, put my, to you know, make Jesus my Lord, to say that prayer. And I realize now that I was not truly saved. I did not have any understanding of the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the penalty of sin that was on me of who God is and who I am, of how I'm a sinner in desperate need of a Savior, and how I, am, I need someone else to take my place. I did not understand that. I thought I was good enough. I thought, you know, I'm just a perfect little church boy that could, you know, make it somehow. But nope, that's not me. <clears throat> so through my teenage years, I started to really struggle with some things and started to really grow up into maturing in the faith in, in the faith of life, really, because, you know, you go through things as a, as a teenager that you really don't, never understand of the way Satan's going to use it against you. So once you grow up and, you know, you get to see the sins and the things that you can get into and the wrong kind of people you can hang around, I realized that I was not truly saved. My parents had found um, some of the things that I was doing behind their back and, you know, kind of the things I was hiding. And it really, like I said, it brought that conviction that I'm not truly saved. I do not know Jesus as that Lord and Savior that I profess to know Him as. And so there was a couple weeks that I knew that if I were to die in my sleep that night, that I was going straight to hell. And a couple weeks went by with that, and that, that thought on my heart. And as I dealt with that, you know, kind of processed that, Malcolm preached a sermon on how Christ was our substitute, and how He was the perfect sacrifice and that perfect Lamb that was slain for our pardon. And there's nothing more that's a greater news of someone else taking your place, even though you're bad, even though you've, you've done too much, even though you're the worst of the worst. He came for the worst of the worst. And so as, as, I, was true, as I asked Christ to save me that night, and I asked him to you know, take this sin that I've been struggling with and to truly put my faith and trust into Christ and repent and believe in what he's done, I was truly saved. I was truly converted. And I had a peace about it. I wasn't scared about what Christ had, or how, where I was going to end up that day. I knew what Christ had done for me. And so it was the preaching of the gospel, truly me listening and believing and actually understanding who I am in the sight of God. I'm not good in the sight of God. I never will be. 
but his son was. And I had to put my perfect, and his perfect work on the cross, I had to put faith and trust in that. And so I was a recipient of this gospel. I'm a lover of this gospel. And so by the grace of God today, I stand to you as a preacher of this gospel. God has called me to the ministry. Just to, I mean, really the last two years I've been struggling with it because I knew that there was so much of false doctrine being um, applied in the, li- the last modern-day churches. And just in our communities, too, there's some of it, too. And I knew that the way that I had been called out of this darkness of the preach of the true gospel, that I had to do the same for my fellow man. And so as God has brought this, ministry, this calling into my life, it has just been obvious for the last couple of months after I surrendered of what God's doing through it and how I'm supposed to be called to this and doing this. So I, I hope that you're, you're kind of praying with me tonight as we go through because this is really one of the first sermons I've, I've done. And it's, a, a, like I said, a pleasure and just a, an absolute honor to be able to preach for you guys tonight. <clears throat> so there's two things in this. There's one thing that we're, we should not be ashamed of, and it's the gospel. There are things that we should be ashamed of and that, you know, there's a lot of things that we, before your life, before you met Jesus, that you could be ashamed of and that things that you are not very confident in. You know, there's things in my life that I'm not, I'm ashamed of because of what I've done before I met Christ. I have a friend that, um, I have a friend that eats, you know, there's just, they, 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 they have a way they eat different and they think that they should be ashamed of it because of their body, their way they, they, they look. There's no reason that someone would be ashamed of this. And there's things we should be ashamed of. Our pastor is a Gators fan. We should be ashamed of that. <laughs> Amen. We, I have a friend that eats uh, macaroni and cheese and ketchup together. That's something to be shameful. That's something that should be ashamed of. But brothers and sisters, the gospel is not one of these things. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So let's read here in our, um, our, our Bibles in Romans chapter 1. And here's a little bit of background before we get into this verse. Most of us are, are familiar with this verse in Romans. Of course, Paul's letter to the Romans begins with greetings and thanksgivings and loving prayers to the believers that he wrote to. One thing that's different about the church of Rome is that he hadn't been able to visit them as he wanted to. Rome being a very important city and popular city, some people may have accused Paul of being ashamed to take this strange new message and proclaim it. But now we can speculate the reasons that, why he says the things that he said. But whatever the reason, we have plenty, plenty of reasons to pray that God will give us the amount of boldness and courage that he gives Paul in this text. So if you don't mind, stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, and the word of God says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm going to read it one more time. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you. Thank you again for what your Son has done for us, Lord. God, just thank you for this opportunity to preach your word and to be able to preach your word, God. God, I just, I'm so humble in your presence tonight, God, that you have chosen someone as, as, as awful as me to be able to preach your word truly, Lord. God, I thank you for this opportunity again. And God, just be with me in my nervousness and my, my stutter, Lord. Just don't let me say anything I shouldn't tonight. But Lord, let me say everything I should for your glory. And God, will praise you and give you glory and thanks for all that you've done already and all that you will do, Lord. And I'll just ask in your name, your son's perfect name. Amen. <clears throat> Y'all may be seated. The Apostle Paul in this, in this verse is eager to preach the gospel to them, even though he's in a hostile city culture, and among hostile people. 
We also know he's confident in the reason he's there. And there was shame and persecution on the roles of the church of this day, and the Christian church of its, of its hour. He came boldly to say that he was unashamed. And we too are in a place in our culture that attaches shame to our message. We too of the church are, are trying to push, people are trying to push things that, to make us ashamed of the gospel. We know the core values of our culture clash with the core values of the gospel. Mainly the fact that we're going to talk about one true holy God clashes very much with the mushy idea of a possible creator and a mushy idea of something out there created everything. Our culture hates this gospel. We also talk about there's only one way to this God. That clashes with the idea that you can believe whatever you want as long as you're a good person and nice to other people. There's something that you need to understand about this gospel. It's an offensive message. The gospel is a difficult message. The insertion that we are sinners, that's not tolerated in this culture. As we desire acceptance and to respect it among this culture, the temptation is going to be to feel shame about our gospel. We're going to be pushed into a corner for what we believe. And as we we think about what God's called us to do, I encourage you to to not get pushed in that corner because we, in the sense, we own the room. God's already done it. Shame can begin to rule our actions and threaten our faithfulness because with shame, our eagerness to share and preach the gospel has turned into an uneasiness to share and preach. Our readiness to share turns into a fear of sharing. This is a very serious danger for the church. And it would be appropriate to ask the question, should we be ashamed? We are in a very different culture. Should we be ashamed of this very old message? There's a popular preacher out there saying the church is going to remain irrelevant if it keeps quoting 2,000-year-old text. Should we be ashamed of this message? The text we just read says, boldly, absolutely not. We are not to be ashamed of the gospel. In fact, we want God to give us confidence instead of shame. So I want to give us four reasons to stay unashamed in this text, Romans 1.16, to stay unashamed of the gospel, to be not ashamed of the gospel. And to remind us to stay unashamed, the same reason that Paul gives us and that he's not ashamed. There are many more in the verses following in the entire book of Romans, but I just want to look at four things in this verse and why we should remain unashamed and why we should remain eager to preach the gospel. And I hope that in the end we will see that shame is the wrong response to what God's power is to save anyone. Number one, I want you to see the person. So in our back to our verse, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. We preach Christ's gospel. This is His work. This is who He is. This is His life. This is Christ's gospel. We can, in, this, in our life, we can be ashamed of people and who leads things or who's in charge of things. But who's in the charge of this gospel? Who is the leader of this gospel? Back in verse 1, it says that it's the gospel of God. But we know this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot be ashamed in that. He is the perfect Savior. He is our seeking and, and our servant server, Savior. He is the perfect substitute. He is the Messiah that was died, crucified on a cross 2,000 years ago. There's no reason to be ashamed in this because He saved our souls from the very pits of hell. 1 Corinthians one twenty three says, But we preach Christ crucified. Amen, hallelujah, because if we didn't preach anything else, there would be no hope. And I want to get to the second point really quick because I feel like that's where my, my majority of the message is. But it's number two, the power, the power of the gospel. Back to our verse, it says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, 
but under us which are saved, it is the power of God. We're typically not ashamed of uh, powerful things. When you think of things we're ashamed of, it's usually uh, weakness, weak things. We're ashamed of weak things because of their inability to accomplish something. When something is weak, it can't get things done. But power, on the other hand, gives us confidence. And Paul says he is unashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. He has confidence in this. When we think of power, we think of strength, we think of might, we think of the ability of changing and influencing. Like presidents have the power to write something into the law. Boxers have the power to knock someone out. Tractors have the power to lift and to move and to haul things. But when Paul's referencing to this power, he's saying in the transaction of sinners being saved from their sins in hell, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is where that power lies. It's not just any power. It's God's power. That's where the power is. We often treat the gospel like it's a mere tool we use, like a screwdriver. A screwdriver is a helpful tool that you can place into a groove and you, know, you can spin it around and it allows you to tighten or loosen something. But really the only thing the screwdriver does is give you a grip on the screw. You have to supply the power into the screwdriver. So in a sense, the screwdriver is the weak one and the human being, of course, is the powerful one. You have to supply the power. It is not a tool, this gospel is not a tool in our hands that we use. The screwdriver is not the gospel. This is not something that we put into place, that we try to use, that we try to do. That's not how it works. The gospel is more like a power drill. It is not relying on our power. It is not relying on how we say things. It is not relying on how we can use things. It is relying on God and God alone and His sovereignty. These, there is so many, like I said, the, power, the gospel is more like a power drill because there are boards that you can't get a screw out of. It's so thick and no matter how much I try to take a, a screwdriver and twist that screw out, I'm not going to be able to get that screw out. But with a power drill, all I have to do is just put it in the right place at the right time and pull the trigger. That's what makes the gospel like a power drill. All I, God's the one that puts the power in it, fully charged, and He puts it in our hands, and He's called us to aim and press the trigger. He supplies the power and uses it as He wishes. We're the weak ones, and God has put something powerful in our hands. And if we take a step back even more, it's actually like we're the screwdriver, and God's got His hand on us. He's the one putting our pow- the power into us. And so the gospel is the power of God. Why does this gospel need to be powerful, though? Look at first, or 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, and the pulling, of str- pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. This gospel needs to be powerful because there's, there's an enemy out there that is blinding the minds of every recipient of this gospel. There's sin out in the world that hides this gospel. There's evil people that hate this gospel. They, they, want, they don't want nothing to do with it. They don't want nothing where you can even see it. So yes, our, our gospel has to be powerful because if it was a weak gospel, we would never be able to reach anyone. We wouldn't be reached with our God. We wouldn't be saved because it was not, it would have been weak enough to reach us. But thank God, it is the power of God unto salvation. Our weapon has a divine, mighty power, 
And why should we be ashamed of such a powerful thing? Shame is an enemy of the gospel. And here's why shame is the enemy of the gospel. It shifts the focus off of God and the gospel and off the person that needs the gospel and onto us and how people perceive us. And that's why shame in our hearts is the enemy of the gospel. It's because the focus is in the wrong place. And when the focus is in the wrong place, like that, it distorts everything, including the way we see the gospel itself. Shame can make us think the gospel's weak, but brothers and sisters, it's not. Shame is an enemy and a liar. He does not know what we know. He knows the truth of God's word, and it's trying to hide it from us. If we're going to judge the merit of the gospel based on how much people like it when we share it to them, it's going to distort our, power, or our, our picture of the gospel. And that's when shame takes over. It can lead us to tamper with this gospel. Instead of doing what Paul says and stating it plainly and openly, we feel the need to alter it and to make it less shameful. Have you ever been to um, a wedding or like a, just a restaurant avenue or something like that? You know, they give out cups and they give out, you know, your tables and stuff. And they'll, they say, you can see that they have tea out. And you're like, oh, I love tea. Let me go, go get some of that. So you get it and you pour it in your cup and you take a sip and you're like, oh, this is Satan's liquid. This is unsweet tea. <laughs> and so you take, like any normal human being, you take about 18 sugar packs and pour it in there. Try to stir it up. And you try to see, you know, make it a little bit sweeter. Make it a little bit more bearable to drink. The gospel is not sweet tea. It's, the gospel is not unsweet tea. The gospel does not need us to pour anything into it or to take anything out of it. The gospel is perfect as is. Some people see the gospel as unpalatable, not sweet enough to people's taste buds. And they think if we're going to make this sweet, we need to add a little bit of something to it. We need to make it a little bit more attractive. Maybe take away a few things. And this reveals how we truly see the gospel. Because you don't feel the need to tamper with something unless it's flawed or inefficient. You don't mess with things that are perfect. And the gospel is perfect. The gospel does not need us to make it any sweeter. The gospel does not need us to tamper with it. The gospel does not need to make, us to make it any more attractive. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We cannot add anything to it to make it more powerful. We cannot take away anything from it to make it more powerful. The gospel as is, is the power of God unto salvation. That should be a comfort to us. We don't do the saving. We don't add any sweetness to it. Your evangelism doesn't have to be perfect. We don't look to our perfection. We look to Christ's perfection. And we all have access to this power. We all have been entrusted with this power. This gospel may look weak to other people, but we know the truth. And why would we have a problem and be ashamed with such a powerful message? But what is the gospel and the power of God for? Number three, the point slash purpose. It's for salvation. This gospel has to be powerful for a purpose. It's to save sinners from the depths of hell and the damnation of hell, the penalty of God's wrath. That's the purpose of the gospel. It's not an abstract power. It's not a power working randomly, unpredictably. The gospel is the power of God for a specific purpose, for salvation, for deliverance, for rescue, for refuge. And that is a glorious news to proclaim to someone. Can you imagine being ashamed of telling someone how to get out of a burning building? Or, how to, or like telling, not telling a blind man to not walk off a hill? Of course not. Do not be ashamed of this. It's good news. 
We're ashamed of things that have bad outcomes or undesired outcomes, but the gospel does not have an undesired outcome. The outcome of the gospel is the salvation of sinners. Where is, the, in, where in, is there room for shame in that? And I hope we don't forget the urgency and the good news we proclaim is actually good news. We were in this bad situation. We, just remember how you were before you got saved. We were in the same situation. No peace, no easiness, no, absolutely no hope for what was going to happen for tomorrow. But thank God, he, he rescued us. And He saved us. If you truly believe in Him tonight, He saved us and gave us a hope tonight. We were depraved sinners who were bound for hell. Our problem was that we loved our sin and we chose to disobey God rather than to love Him. Romans uh, 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold truth in, the, in unrighteousness. Because them that... Verse 19. Because them that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. Verse 20. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world who are clearly seen being understood of the things that are made even His eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So we see that we were under the wrath of God just like everyone else. But we get to tell people this. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all expectation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Amen. Praise God. We never have to tell someone the bad news without telling them the good news. We never have to leave someone with the, the eternal hope of we do serve a righteous and holy God that has damned the sinner to hell. But thank God, God made an intercession for those people that are damned to hell. He came for sinners, not just, just to let every now and then let a sinner in. He came for sinners just like us. He came for the worst of the worst. He came for us. The Apostle Paul had nothing else in his hope besides that. That is who he was, the chief of sinners. And he, he gave glory to God every day because he was saved and what God had done in his life. We get to tell people that Christ died for our sins and gave us a salvation. He gave us new hearts and a new spirit so that no longer are we in bondage to this sin. And not only is it that he came just sometimes, but he came for us. He came for the worst of the worst. We don't have to look to ourselves anymore. We look to Christ, for Christ alone. It's easier, it'll be easier for shame to creep in our lives and our hearts if we forget the importance and the urgency of the salvation. Romans 2 verse 5 says, But after thy hardness and independent heart treasure up thyself wrath unto the, against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. We know what we just read. The salvation that Paul is talking about is the salvation from the wrath of God. How much does it affect our hearts that there are people who experience this wrath? Friends and our family and our co-workers will maybe come underneath this wrath and this judgment that they so rightly deserve. There's a preacher that said, if the Lord answered all your prayers today, how many of your friends and your family would be saved? The day I heard this, I had not prayed for one person's salvation. I had not prayed for any of my family, for any of my friends to be saved, for anyone I knew in this world. I had not prayed for one soul. And it broke my heart. We have the chance to come into the courts of the Most High God as His children 
and to pray as him, to pray to him as his children, and to beg him to save our family and to save our friends and our family and our co-workers. But we choose not to. We don't. We abuse the power because we think we were just good enough and we got in somehow. My friend, we are not anything. We are like this to God. We need to be praying for the souls of the lost every day. We have the opportunity to, so let's take on that opportunity. Ray Comfort says this, and I quote, If you're not concerned about your neighbor's salvation, then I'm concerned for yours. And that needs to be in our hearts. This needs to burden our hearts every day. That every soul we meet without, that will meet us would see something that pointing towards Christ in our lives. There's been so many times I felt compelled to share the gospel with someone, and I didn't mainly because I was fearing an awkward conversation, which seemed perfectly rational in my mind right there. But I can't think of anything crazier than fearing an awkward conversation for a moment more than fearing the wrath of God that would be on somebody for an eternity. My intention is not to leave you here feeling guilty about that, but to burden you even more. And Pastor Malcolm's been a great job on this already. And I just, as he's been gone, I, I kind of took a chance to kind of make a reminder that we do still, there's still lost people in this world. And we need to take every chance that we can to reach them. I hope this will put the urgency of our hearts to preach this gospel and not be ashamed. Because there's one thing about this, this new age culture and this new, um, this new kind of ideals of how this world works. All the LGBTQIA+, plus one, two, three, so on and so on. The first thing they say is, I am unashamed of who I am. They're unashamed of their sin. They're unashamed of their eternal destination. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we're to be the ones that are unashamed. We're the ones that have a hope and a God that cared enough for us to save us out of the hell. But it comes to the point where we're the ones ashamed. We're the ones in this modern day where Paul, in his day, was in the midst of persecution. No one, he, he was a, uh, what is it called, repeat offender. <laughs> he got in trouble a lot because he was doing the same thing over and over again. He wasn't ashamed. But we, as the American church, have no fear, no persecution, Nothing to, to even question our stance. We might get you know, just a little bit of a, a push away from the, the regular crowd. But we're the ones that are ashamed of the gospel. We're the ones that have no reason to be. And it's us. It's us that are ashamed of this gospel. It's us. Why? Why are we ashamed of this, this gospel? Because we truly do not believe the stages for us to be ashamed of this gospel. I want to look at one more thing, number four, the proposal. Romans 10, 13 is a very familiar verse, and the preacher says it all the time, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do we believe that? Church, do we believe that? Everyone we come into contact with, do we believe that, that if they believe in the name of the Lord, they shall be saved? Do we come into contact with, I could share the gospel with them right now, and they could be saved. Or do we look at that fear and are we ashamed? There's a universal call, a universal offer, and praise God for that. There's only one way to be saved, and it's through the good news of this Jesus. Amen. So we have a reminder that no one is out of reach. No one. And as we look at this and what Christ has done, 
there should be no shame for us. I want to ask you one more thing, and I'll close with this. Are we ashamed of this gospel? There are good reasons to be ashamed of things in this world. Like I said before, he's a Gators fan. There's good reasons to be ashamed of that. But there are zero good reasons to be ashamed of the gospel. We're ashamed of things because of their leader, but there's no reason to be ashamed of who the leader is of the gospel. We're ashamed of things that are weak, but there are no reason to be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We're ashamed of things that have a bad outcome or purpose, but the gospel's outcome is the salvation of sinners. We're ashamed of things that, are, that their effect is too narrow and what it accomplishes, but the gospel is available to everyone. So there is good, no good reasons to be ashamed of the gospel, and there are infinite reasons to be confident in it. And so my prayer is that we will not be ashamed and that God will give us grace and to be eager to proclaim his gospel. Amen. Let that be a burden to his church. Let us pray. <clears throat> Dearly Father, thank you for your gospel and how it has affected us in this room, how it has saved us in this room. And Lord, let us not be ashamed of this gospel, for you have done it for us. You have done the work. You have put in every bit of the, the, the sacrifice and the substitute that we could not be, God. So let us be confident in your work, not our works. Be confident in what you have done, God. And God, we'll give you the praise and the glory and everything we ever could because of this gospel. And we ask it all in your son's holy and perfect name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. Wow. That was awesome, Brother Weston. I tell you right now, I'm going to need a copy of that message. And uh, tomorrow I'm going out and I'm going to buy me a brand new drill. Uh, Man, that was just great. That was great. Um, It's going to be hard to follow that. I'll tell you right now, we could go home right now and say that we went to church. Um, That was very, very challenging message uh, and a good reminder of uh, of the uh, gift that we've all been recipients of uh, and just how powerful the gospel is really, really is. That was a great, great message. Um, so church tonight, uh, I'm going to be, uh, preaching out of first John chapter number three. And this is a message that, um, Lord gave to me several months ago. And, um, he revealed to me this week, um, that I had been doing it all wrong. Uh, it was one of those messages that came to me, and I was so excited to start preaching it, uh, but the uh, Lord showed me that I needed to meditate on it just a little bit longer, uh, and He had some more things to reveal to me, and so I'm very excited to uh, bring this message to you tonight. It's something that uh, has challenged me, and uh, I believe is a good reminder for all of us here tonight. So we're just going to read uh, a couple verses, and then we'll pray. First uh, John chapter 3. And we're going to start reading in verse number 23. Bible says, And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. And He that keepeth His commandments dwelleth in Him, and He in Him. And hereby we know that He abideth in us by the Spirit which He hath given us. Church, tonight I want to talk to you tonight on the subject of abiding in the Lord. Abiding in the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here tonight. Thank you so much for uh, the freedom that we have to come out here and to study your word and to worship you. Lord, I love you so much and I thank you for, uh, Lord, another day. Lord, I thank you for salvation. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, I ask that you would give me the strength, Lord, to deliver this message the way that you want it to be delivered. Lord, help me uh, to uh, deliver it honestly with a pure heart. Lord, remove anything from my heart that would uh, hinder you tonight. And I ask that you would uh, just be with this service. In your name I pray. Amen. 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 Dr. J. Vernon McGee says, It is one to testify that we know Christ and are in him. It is quite another thing to have a life that reveals he is our righteousness. He goes on to say, We recognize other believers by their lives and not their lips. By their lives and not their lips. It's very easy to say, I'm a Christian. And it's a whole different thing to forgive somebody who has wronged you. Those are two very different things. And so, the book of 1 John, I encourage you, if you have the time, go study it. It spends most of its time telling us the difference between someone who is and someone who is not a child of God. In the book of, uh, in the book of John, it's a very personal book. It's actually referred to as the family epistle. Uh, and the word fellowshiped is used four times. Uh, the word to know something is used 31 times. Father is used 13 times. Little children is used 11 times. And so it's a very, very personal book, a very intimate book on how to know if you are part of the family of God. And so as I was reading uh, through this book, I noticed that it gave us some commands on, to follow and if we were to follow these commands, then we would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we are indeed abiding in the Lord. And so real quickly tonight, I want to let you know that every person can have fellowship with the Lord, can abide in the Lord by following the three commands that we see in these verses. Command number one, if you'll look in verse number 23, is to accept Jesus, is to accept Jesus. Verse 23 starts off saying, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. One of the things that sticks out to me about this is a lot of times we view accepting Christ as a gift that we are to receive. Salvation is a gift that we accept, but here in 1 John, it's a commandment. It is a commandment. It's a call to action. My friends, the first step in having a relationship with Jesus Christ is you have to know who He is. And He has to know you. Uh, I, a lot of people will say nowadays uh, when they talk about God, they'll say God is love. Absolutely God is love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He didn't just love the people that he knew were going to accept him. He loved the world. 
But as much as God is love, God is also just. And if we do not accept Him and accept His Son, Jesus, into our hearts, we'll never have a relationship with Him. You say, how, how do I accept Jesus? Number one, you have to confess. And number two, you have to believe. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Amen. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Amen. The first step in having a relationship with the Lord is accepting Jesus into your heart. I'll never forget the day that I came to the realization that I did not have a relationship with Jesus. Me and Weston have a very, very similar testimony. Um, grew up in church, uh, and I knew a lot about the Bible. I went to a private Christian school, and uh, I just knew a lot of things. And, and one day, uh, my principal was teaching our chapel service, and he educated us and told us that without knowing Jesus Christ as your personal Savior... You can never have a relationship with Him. doesn't matter how much you know about Him. doesn't matter how long you've been coming to church. doesn't matter how many times you've read the Bible. Unless you have repented and put your tr faith and trust in Christ, you'll never have a relationship with Him. And so that was the day that I realized and I made the decision to accept Jesus and to follow Him with all of my heart. And I'm here to tell you tonight, if you have not made that decision, I implore you to do so. We do not know how much longer we have on this earth. The Bible says in James that our life is but a vapor. It's just a vapor compared to eternity. Command number one is to accept Jesus. Accept Jesus. The second command that we see in these verses and one that we might find far more difficult is in the latter part of verse number 23. It says that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. Commandment number two, and if we're going to abide in the Lord, we have to love one another. Love one another. Amen. I don't think anybody has set so great an example of love as Jesus did during his ministry on this earth. Jesus was uh, notorious for showing compassion and love to those who received no love. Matter of fact, that is one of the reasons the Pharisees despised him so much is because he was affiliated with people that they did not deem worthy of love. He was hanging out and fellowshipping and witnessing and ministering to people that the Pharisees would never come close to. And as much as Jesus loved the sinners, loved the lost, the love that He showed His friends and His disciples is, is far more difficult for me to grasp. The, the amount of patience that Jesus had with his disciples throughout his ministry is unmatched. These disciples did not have a clue 
what was really going on half the time. And he loved them. And all throughout the New Testament and the pastoral epistles, you'll see in almost every book, they're addressing an issue. And more often than not, the issue has to do with either false teaching or people in the church not getting along. I often wondered as a kid growing up why there were so many different kinds of churches. And because in my mind, I thought we should just all go to church together. You know, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't quite get it. And as I grew older and started to ask some questions, I realized the reason there's so many different churches is because none of us can agree on anything. And we allow personal preferences to overshadow brotherly love. And it's very, very sad. I'm of the opinion that if Jesus was among us today, we would not care at all about Baptist or Methodist or Church of Christ or Presbyterian or whatever you want to call it. We would only care about worshiping Jesus and following Him. And from what I can tell in the Bible, Jesus did not set up any denominations before he left or during his ministry. He simply gave us the gospel. He gave us doctrine. And he gave us instruction to love one another. 1 John actually deals a lot with this subject. And in 1 John chapter 2... Verse number 9, the Bible reads, He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness, even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth. Because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. So very plainly we see here, John is giving us some telltale signs of if you see someone not showing love to their brother or sister in Christ, he said, there's no light in him. He says he is in the darkness. We cannot claim to be Christians and to have a relationship with Christ and simultaneously not show love and compassion to one another. The two must go hand in hand. With a relationship with God must come love and compassion for others. Has to. There's no way around it. And I think that's one of the biggest Uh, issues and stumbling blocks we come across in church. Because so many times we've got people sitting on one side of the auditorium that won't even speak to somebody sitting on the other side of the auditorium. Or maybe you come to a a different service just because you know who goes to the other service. (laughs) We, We have a tendency to hold grudges. And to think whenever preachers throwing down up here, 
man, they need to listen up. I, I know because I've done it. It was always easy for me to sit through sermons about forgiveness and loving one another when I was a little kid. Real easy. Because anybody ever did me wrong, we, were, we, were, we made up and, and forgave each other within 30 minutes. But then I got me a big boy job and went out in the real world and had some people stab me in the back a couple times. And I started to realize why Jesus preached on forgiveness so much. It's a, it's a muscle that you got to exercise and you got to train. And it's very difficult. Very, very difficult. Uh, I, I'm a child of God, uh, but sometimes on the job site, some of these contractors test just how much Jesus I got in me. It's real. It's real. But can I tell you, the most Christ-like thing to do is to just let it roll off your back and to remember this is not what, this is, not what is important. This is not the most important thing. Showing Jesus and being a light to everyone that I come in contact with is what it's all about. Putting Jesus first. And, and God has assured us that everyone will get theirs. Vengeance is His. He, he, he's keeping account. He knows. You think Jesus doesn't understand what it's like to be stabbed in the back? What it's like to be betrayed? I, I had the audacity one day. I, my favorite place to, to pray or my favorite time to pray is when I'm at the house all by myself and, and I'm getting ready to get in the shower and, and I'm just crying out to God, telling Him just how horrible my life is. And, and one day I really, really was hurting. And I, I had the gunction to say, Lord, you just don't even understand. <laughs> and about that time I got those words out of my mouth. Conviction hit me and said, oh, really? I don't understand. I don't know what it's like to be betrayed and, and to be stabbed in the back, to be sold, right? right? And then I got to thinking that if it was not for Jesus being betrayed, I wouldn't be here. None of us would be. And that really put things in perspective for me. And I... Before I move on to the third commandment, Lord just gave me this. Probably one of the most influential men in my life, my grandpa, he was very, very good at showing love to the people that he cared about and everybody that he came in contact with. If you needed something, my grandpa would get it, even if he didn't own it. I, I know on multiple occasions that this man would borrow from a friend of a friend a saw or a trailer or a truck or whatever it might be just to give it to another friend of a friend who needed it. He went out of his way all the time to be there for people. And you talk about somebody who was loyal to his pastor. My grandpa would gun you down. <laughs> In defense of his pastor. And there's more to that story than I'm letting on. <laughs> he, 
he was loyal and he was loving and he was compassionate even when the people that he was giving it to wouldn't always return the favor. And he taught me from a very early age, and my dad as well, that people notice and pay attention to how much you love others and to how much you show kindness. I wonder when people talk about you when you're not there, what do they say about you? My, my favorite thing is when somebody asks me, hey, do you go to temple? And, and I'll say, yeah. And they'll say, well, do you know so-and-so? And I do know so-and-so. And I've many times, so-and-so's reputation with another person has not been too hot. But I love when they say, man, I don't go to church, but that's a good dude. He loves people. That makes me proud. But it also makes me wonder what people say about me whenever they're talking about me. Do you know Hunter Sharp? He goes to Temple, right? Man, that's a sorry son of a gun. I tell you what, he painted my house. It, you got to think about it. Because we might say to ourselves, well, just this one time, this one person, there ain't no way I'm, I'm taking the high road here. But you have no idea who's watching or who knows. But I tell you who's always watching and who knows without a shadow of a doubt. And that's our Heavenly Father. And I hate, I hate to break it to you, but we are commanded right here to love one another. To love one another. And to forgive one another. Forgive one another. Amen. I want to share with you the third and final commandment that we see here. We talked about how we are to accept Jesus, how we are to love one another. But lastly, the third commandment, we are to obey Him. Obey Him. And I know what y'all are thinking. My message is not nice and alliterated like Weston's was, okay? I'm not, I'm not on his level. I just keep it elementary. But we are to obey Him. Obey Him. Verse number 24, read this with me. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we, what's that next word? No. Hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. We know about ourselves and about others that we are abiding in the Lord if we are obeying him. How do we obey him? Keep his word. Plain and simple. I wanted to try and find another sub point to go with that, but that one just sums it all up. There ain't much more you can add to that. Keep His Word. Keep His Word. And you might say, well, I don't know what, about, what to do about this or if this or this is wrong. Look, at, look in the Bible. I promise you it tells you. And what I've found... 99% of the time, if I have to ask myself, is this wrong? It is. <laughs> right? It, it, it's wrong. I'm just wanting to justify something. All right? I'm, I'm, I'm looking for some way to, for the Bible to validate my feelings of, of, of getting justice. Or getting what I want. But 
Jesus doesn't leave any room for that when we're abiding in him. What he says goes. What he says goes. You want to know why our pastor is in Pennsylvania this week? He's obeying the Lord. He is obeying the Lord. God burdened his heart to share with other pastors and other leaders and churches all across this country on how to get the gospel to the unreached people in their communities. And instead of, you know, keeping that little nugget for himself and and growing temple as much as he could, he is traveling almost every week sharing that with others. And I'm I don't know about y'all, but I'm thankful that here at Temple Baptist Church we have a pastor that other people are eager to hear from. Makes me proud. Gives me a lot of confidence. But also doesn't give me a lot of excuses. Right? Every week we are taught to obey God's word. To do as he tells us to do. In First uh, John chapter 2 as well. Deals with this commandment. First John 2 verses 3 through 5. Bible says, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. John is saying, only when we are fully obedient to the Lord is God's love perfected in us. I don't know about you, but I really, really want to strive for my walk with the Lord to be a walk where God's love is perfected. Amen? Amen. I, I want to be obedient to Him. I want to serve Him. I want to glorify Him. I want to worship Him. You say, why? Because of all the reasons that Weston talked about. Because of the power of the gospel. Because of whose gospel it is. Because of how blessed I am. I, I am so undeserving to be standing here tonight. I'm the last person that I would have picked. I promise you. There is nothing in me that is special at all other than what I received from the Lord. And I challenge you tonight. Examine yourself. Take a close look at your walk with the Lord under the microscope. Have you even accepted Jesus? Malcolm Sr. told my dad whenever he was leading him to the Lord, he said, son, you can spend the night in the garage, but that don't make you a Ford. Words of wisdom right there. Just because you come to church, faithfully even, doesn't make you a believer. Doesn't make you a part of the family of God. Have you accepted Jesus? Do you love one another? Say, I love Jesus, but I don't know about... Everybody else that loves them. Do you show compassion? 
Do you forgive when there's hurt? Do you show love? And do you obey Him? And I'm not just talking about right and wrong. Maybe God's put something on your heart that He wants you to do. And you've been running from it. Can I tell you, you will never find peace in your life until you surrender to the Lord. Until you give yourself to Him completely. You'll never find peace. You'll never be happy unless you present yourself to God and say, God, here I am. Use me. If we are not fully dwelling in the Lord and He in us, then we are missing the full potential of our Christian lives. We were not adopted into the family of God to be people who simply sit in a building on Sundays or to be lazy reciprocants of everlasting life. God's desire is to have the closest relationship possible with us. Only then will His love be perfected in us. I encourage you tonight, examine yourself. Are you truly abiding in the Lord? Are you walking with Him every day? Because I promise you, that's what He wants. His desire has not changed one bit. Amen.